Hello and welcome to this, the fifth and final edition of our series of podcasts entitled A View from the Practitioners, AIM at 25, in which members of the Stevenson Harwood Equity Capital Markets team have been speaking with some of the contributing authors to the Practitioner's Guide to the AIM Rules, the eighth edition of which was recently published by Sweet and Maxwell. The publication of this edition coincides with AIM's 25th anniversary. I'm David Dowding, a partner in corporate and DCM here at Stevenson Harwood and fellow partner of Tom Nichols and Tom Page, co-editors of the guide. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Linda Main, who leads the Capital Markets Advisory Group at KPMG. Joining us also is Barbara Allen, my fellow partner who heads up our employee incentives team here at Stevenson Harwood, who will be sharing with us her thoughts as we take a look at current trends and points to watch out for on corporate governance, internal audits and controls and executive remuneration matters. Linda, welcome and thank you for joining us. Now, the chapter that you edit in the guide focuses on the role of the reporting accountant and the financial reporting requirements to achieve a listing on AIM. Would it be safe to say that perhaps now, more than ever, securing a successful IPO is only the first of many challenges awaiting a traded company? Yeah, absolutely right, David. It's one thing to get listed and quite another to be a successful listed company with the systems and controls in place to make sure that you can have a strong, and lasting relationship with your investors. Standards of disclosure and governance are trending upwards, and very small companies are finding it increasingly difficult to comply, and they're having to undertake a proper cost-benefit analysis before deciding to list. And that's one driver for slightly larger companies coming to the market. Compliance costs can be quite significant, and not all companies are able and willing to comply. That's not to say, of course, that growth markets aren't the right destination for small companies. It's just one thing to think about. You've got to be ready and you've got to be prepared to put in the right controls and procedures to make sure that you're ready to be a listed company. You flagged there, Linda, the increasing demands being made on companies to establish and maintain robust internal systems and controls, as well as enhancing their reporting capabilities. Would you agree, Barbara, that there's evidence for this? And if so, to what extent is it right to lay responsibility for those developments squarely at the feet of institutional investors and their evolving expectations? I agree with what you've just said, David. Um, I think that sort of having a good corporate governance framework is fundamental for the long-term success of a company. It's all about ensuring the board is set up to make robust decisions, to manage risk, and to be confident in the disclosures which they make to investors. And I think what we're seeing at the moment are increasing expectations from investors on the level and detail of disclosures that they are expecting. Um, The QCA, in its review for 2020, commented that the percentage of companies making minimum disclosures has shown a marked increase over the last three years. And following on from that, I think that we're seeing, again, um, the QCA leading the pack for AIM companies in their recent guide for remuneration committees, where they are recommending enhanced disclosures in the context of remuneration. But by way of an overarching comment, investors might tolerate poor corporate governance while companies are doing well. But longer term, a company needs to have the right 
corporate governance infrastructure to be forgiven for trading hiccups or periods of underperformance. Yes, I agree that the light touch approach does seem to be coming a little bit less acceptable. I think investors do expect well-controlled companies and it is part and parcel of being a robust and mature listed company. Having said that, there's various factors at play here and opportunities for light-touch regulation may well materialise. For example, in their response to Lord Hill's listing review, the QCA very recently proposed a relaxation of rules for the standard segment of the main market in an attempt to emulate the success of NASDAQ by focusing on flexibility and agility. So there's clearly a range of options here for companies. Thank you both. Uh, plenty of good examples there, I think, reflecting a continuing upwards pressure on AIM companies to observe higher standards of corporate governance practices. Linda, do you believe that what we are seeing here is a general levelling up over all of the regime towards mainless standards? Or is that shift in part at least, as you alluded to earlier, perhaps due to larger companies opting for AIM and their being able and willing to meet corporate governance code standards? Yeah, you're right. Historically, most companies on AIM adhere to the QCA code. But that does often appear to be a little bit on the light side. And we're increasingly seeing companies aspiring to adhere to the UK corporate governance code. There is quite a perspective on AIM, some persevering with the QCA, particularly at the smaller end. But larger companies are much more ready to comply with the more onerous UK corporate governance code. And then we see a sort of middle ground where companies aspire to the code but fall back on the QCA code, either wholly or in part, where they're unable to comply in full, particularly in areas like board constitution, for example. Echoing what you've just said, Linda, if you look at this from a remuneration perspective, the investment association principles have historically been aimed at mainlist companies but now they sort of expressly state that these are relevant to companies on other stock exchanges, including AM. And what we're saying is that a number of the sort of structures and best practice principles enunciated by the Investment Association are filtering down into the remuneration structures which AM companies adopt. So, for example, we're seeing sort of deferral of bonus into shares. We're also seeing AM companies adopt shareholding policies requiring directors to build and maintain shares in the company for a period of time and also malice and clawback have now become the norm. Thank you very much both. Now it wouldn't be a proper discussion I guess covering recent trends and events if we didn't consider the impact that coronavirus has had in these areas over the past 12 months. What have we seen Linda when it comes to any notable fallout from the pandemic and what have investors views been on how companies have handled the array of issues raised by COVID-19? Yeah, the QCA looked at this in their governance review and I mean I think generally smaller companies tended to adapt well. They were nimble and they were able to um, react quite swiftly in a lot of cases to the challenges of COVID-19 over the last year or so. A lot of them have been good at adapting to doing business digitally. What we've seen from investors is a desire to understand how the board has dealt with the challenges of the pandemic, how they have kept the company 
operating under the changing circumstances of the last few months. And communication has been a really, really important part of this. So the companies that have communicated well, illustrated to investors how the board's been operating historically and how they see the future over the next few months and what lessons have been learned, have tended to do better than companies that didn't make those clear disclosures. So it's a real illustration that a well-governed company can be nimble, can make positive decisions in a, a strong and proper framework. And governance has definitely held up during the last year and been a sort of big support to management teams. If you've got a, you know, if you've got a strong board, it provides real, real support to management in implementing difficult decisions. Thank you, Linda. And perhaps now looking forward, Barbara, what are we expecting moving into 2021 as investors digest the events of this past year? Looking forward, I think that the areas which are likely to draw the most attention in the light of COVID are bonus payments and performance conditions. In terms of bonuses, the Investment Association have said that no bonuses should be awarded to executives where a company has taken government support, either in the way of loans or furlough for its staff, unless there are truly exceptional circumstances. Equally, in the context of performance conditions, the Investment Association has been quite clear that it is not acceptable to adjust performance conditions for COVID and they do not expect executives to be made immune from COVID implications. But I do think it all comes back again to transparency. So if companies are planning to award bonuses for the financial year 2020, they will need to explain clearly in their annual report their justification for awarding those bonuses. Thank you. And as ever, lots there for AIM companies to be mindful of when it comes to directors and particularly executives remuneration. Beyond the pandemic, Barbara, what have been the developments and trends that have stood out for you on the subjects of director rewards, bonuses and performance conditions more generally? I think everyone would probably agree that there is continuing and growing scrutiny by investors of executive pay. This looks at both quantum and sort of performance conditions, the level of reward and not rewarding for poor performance. I think that what we're seeing is very much this sort of scrutiny and requirement for enhanced disclosures on executive remuneration, particularly as against the rest of the workforce. So looking at CEO pay ratios and high salary increases for the executive team sort of are gauged against the wider workforce. I think the other issues that we are seeing are sort of examples of where performance targets should support business strategy and the company's objectives. 
in particular, I think there has been recent debate about the use of non-financial metrics and that perhaps too much focus may have been placed on purely financial metrics in the past. In the context of annual bonuses, I think we're going to see an increasing use of ESG measures brought into the overall key performance indicators for bonus payments. Thank you, Barbara. Now, you mentioned there how environmental, social and governance measures are being employed to help a move away from measuring performance based purely on financial metrics. The ESG has certainly been much more than a term of art for several years now and an area of investor interest that continues to gain momentum. Linda, how uh, are AIM companies faring in the face of growing expectations in this area? You're absolutely right. This is really gaining momentum, probably faster than the regulation is keeping up, actually. I think everybody originally assumed that this area would be driven by regulation, but actually it's being driven more by investor expectations and also the expectations of the general public that they want to know that companies are taking ESG matters seriously, that it's high up on the board agenda and getting real focus from boards and and management. Investors certainly expect to be able to understand a company's environmental and and social impact. It can be difficult to know exactly what disclosures are required, particularly in the sort of current turbulence. But I think the key thing is take it seriously, be as transparent as possible, and provide as much information to investors as you can. I think ESG is a huge topic, and it covers a whole range of areas. But the key thing here, really, for all companies is communication. Tell investors what you're doing. Tell them what you're aspiring to do in the future. And that will stand you in very good stead. And ESG is also finding its way into performance metrics for executive remuneration. Whereas once ESG measures as part of performance metrics was seen probably as a preserve of mining companies and oil and gas companies on the main list. Um, We're now seeing ESG being adopted as a performance indicator across businesses in all sectors. And as I mentioned earlier, it's been basically confined to date to annual bonuses, but I think that we'll see it you know, probably expanding into longer term reward as well. Well, I I think that neatly brings us to the end of today's discussion. I want to take this opportunity to thank you both very much for your time and your insightful contributions today. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground and uh, hopefully raised some interesting food for thought for our listeners. So thank you once again, Barbara, and thank you again, Linda Main of KPMG. (music) 